Amen. Hey, grab a seat. And as you grab a seat, get a Bible in front of you to Acts chapter 6. And if you need a Bible under a seat nearby, you'll find a Bible under one of those chairs. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. And uh, before we jump into the message today, just want to give you all an update. And if this is uh, your first time with us, uh, you're walking into a church family that's in the midst of uh, a really awesome uh, vision initiative that God has called us to. Uh, we're calling it Scent. You'll see a banner out in the lobby. And what Scent is all about, that uh, we believe God in this next season of our church is calling us to uh, a couple, uh, to really focus on a couple things. One, uh, to, to move from uh, portable church mode to have Having our own church home here on the south side. Second, to begin to uh, become the church planting church that God has called us to be and help other communities that um, are in need of an all about God's glory church and their community, help them get those launched. And then thirdly, to begin to partner with churches around the globe um, to, to just come alongside and support and resource them to be a disciple-making, um, uh, church-planting churches in their context. And so two weeks ago, uh, we know that any time uh, that God calls us to a vision, he calls us into a season of sacrifice uh, where, we, where he calls us people to give towards the vision he's calling us to. And so two weeks ago, uh, Commitment Sunday here where we all came as a family and we said, here's what we believe God's called us as a family or as an individual to commit to this vision and give to this vision over the, the next two years. And uh, um, I just, it's just awesome. It's awesome what our good and gracious and all-powerful God is doing in the midst of our little toddler church here that's two and a half years old. Because over $5.5 million have been committed to this vision for what God's going to do. And that, that it, that's, it's huge what God has provided for this. And it allows our elders to continue to work down the design phase with the architects and get this land uh, figured out over here for what God has. It allows us to continue to move forward with things like the Shelbyville community to help get a church planted there and other communities that God is bringing us. It allows us to begin to walk down the path of identifying uh, global partners that we're going to partner with. And so um, what God has done in our midst, listen, what God calls us to, he always provides for. This is his vision. He's the provider of it, and uh, we cannot wait for what God is going to do through our church in the season ahead. Amen? And so let me just, before I jump in, let me just pray right now and thank God for that um, and for what he's going to do in our midst, and then we'll jump into the word this morning. Father, uh, you are God, and you are God alone. There is none like you. And Lord, we want to spend our lives here living for the things you call us to. And Lord, you've, you've made us a sent people. You, you have called us to go with the mission of carrying this good news message of the gospel here, near, and far. And so, God, we just stop right now and we say thank you that when you call us to a vision as your people, Lord, you always provide for that. And Lord, we are so grateful today for how you've provided for the vision that you've called us to. And now, Lord, we know that you will guide us and direct us with how to best steward the resources you've entrusted to us. And God, we know that you will, you will lead us in how uh, to utilize and carry out this, this mission that you've given us. But God, we just stop right now. And as your people, we say thank you, Lord. And we say, Lord, lead us now. Lord, help us. We are blind without, you, without your sight on our behalf. We are weak without your strength working through us. Lord, we are nothing. You are everything. And Lord, we want to cling solely on you for what you've called us to in the days ahead. And now, God, as we open your word today, Lord, would you please speak to us? 
We know that's your desire, Lord. We know that, Lord, uh, your spirit loves to, to convict and instruct and exhort our hearts through your word being proclaimed. And so, God, would nothing get in the way of that today? Lord, you have a word for our heart, and we want to hear it. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. A fitting worship set today. I, I, was in, uh, the, I was in the line at Starbucks this week, and um, I was waiting next to the newspaper stand. And now if you're under the age of 18, let me explain what that is. Um, um, a newspaper stand is where there's, there's, like, it's, there's stuff called news, and it's on a piece of paper. With, it's, cra- it's a crazy concept. Um, but I was standing by the newspaper stand, and so while I was waiting, I just reached over, and I grabbed one, and I began to read the headlines on the front page, and um, um, what do you think I found? News of tragedy. Uh, right there, the kind of front page picture was unrest in the Middle East and people running from being tear gassed, and news of tragedy, news of, news of, uh, of tribulation, news of crime that was left to be solved, news of recent murders, news of corruption, And I was just sitting there looking at the front page of the newspaper, and I was just thinking, uh, what has become so headline-worthy in our culture is just tragedy, trial, and tribulation. And it's a reflection of what is happening among us. If you happened to be in the Starbucks line Saturday morning, and you picked up the, 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 the newspaper, and you looked at the front page, you'd see yet another school shooting in our country. And reading an article on that, and just uh, just so naive in my mind, just on neutral, not even realizing, um, I read a sentence that said, this is the 22nd school, sh- school shooting in the U.S., and for some reason, my, my brain wanted to continue that to, that, to finish that sentence, 22nd school shooting in the U.S. ever, and what it actually said, 22nd school shooting in the U.S. this year. What was so headline, what, I mean, what was so um, 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 just absolutely earth-shattering with Columbine, now so many of those that happened don't even make the headlines. And I was just looking at the headlines of the newspaper, and I was thinking, just covered, just plastered, just completely filled with trial, with tragedy, with tribulation, with hardship. And it made me think, um, as I was in that Starbucks line to sit down and work on some more of the message for today, um, what we're going to study here today would be headline-worthy in our culture today. It was headline-worthy in the culture in this day. And what we're studying today is, um, is a case of first-degree murder. And what we're studying today is a case of first-degree murder um, um, to a man who was innocent, his, his only guilt was that um, he was passionately and wholeheartedly devoted to following after Jesus. Um, we, we turn our attention now in Acts chapter 6 uh, to, the first martyr, to the first martyr of the church. Uh, the first man who would lose his life simply because he was a follower of Jesus and devoted to the way of Jesus. And now, um, we have a lot of ground to cover as we study this today, Um, but I want to remind us of some things as we jump in here, and the first thing I want to remind us of, um, as we pick this story up in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, I want to remind us of the verse we left off on last week, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. 
And it says this, and the word of God continued to increase. And remember, remember, we all said yes. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I mean, God is at work and he's alive in this early church. The spirit of God is all over this. Uh, Great movement for the kingdom is happening. Stuff is getting done for the glory of God and the gospel is advancing and it's awesome. And now we've warned in the past as we've studied this book of Acts, anytime you see a verse like that, what? Watch out. Because the enemy hates What's happening here? And we've showed you this pattern in Acts before that uh, so often what we'll see from now through the rest of this book, the disciples are praying, the Spirit will fill, and the Spirit will come and he'll give, he'll just get, he'll pour out uh, uh, in power a filling of his Spirit to equip his people for a bold witness. And in the disciples, they'll witness boldly. The apostles, they'll witness boldly. And people will believe like we were just told in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. But then, often after the fruit that is born by God, here's what you'll find. It's persecution breaks out. And the, uh, the antagonists, the opposers of the gospel will act. And this is what we're going to see here. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now, um, we got a lot of ground to cover today, and I want you to hang with me. uh, Because we're going to be faces buried in the word for an extended period of time. But then as we get to the end of chapter 7 today, um, we got to walk out of here. We got to walk out of here knowing this. How did this man, who would be murdered for his faith, how would this man who would be murdered for his faith How does he die? And now understand the heart of this question, how does he die? I'm not talking about the mode that, in which is inflicted on him that causes his death. That's not what I'm talking about when I say how does, how does he die. I want to know, as we get to the end of chapter 7, how does he die? What is his attitude in dying? What comes out of his mouth as his life is being drained out of him? I want to know, how does this Jesus follower die well? Because I'm telling you something, this Jesus follower dies well. And I want to know how in the midst of tribulation of tribulations, of trial of trials, of hardship of hardship, how does he die like that? And I believe what we're going to find is this guy named Stephen. He knows the right answer to three really important questions. He knows the right answer to three really important questions. And as we come to the end of our passage today, we're going to unpack what those three questions are. And I'm telling us today, if we want to endure suffering well, we have to know the right answer to these three questions. If we want to walk through tribulation, if we want to go through some of the hardest things life will ever throw at us and not become hardened people through it, we have to know the right answer to these three questions that we'll see at the end of it. 
So Acts chapter 6, verse 8, let's let, let's let God's word be served up this morning and feast on what he has to teach us. And the word of God says this, and Stephen, full of grace and what? Now that's an awesome combo. That is an awesome combination that it can only be worked in the heart of a human being by the Holy Spirit himself. Completely full of grace and completely full of power. We know power people. Power people typically run over people and just abuse people. That's not what Stephen is. He's a man full of grace, but he's a man full of grace who's not soft. He's full of grace and power worked in his heart by the Holy Spirit. We were introduced to this man, Stephen, last week. He's one of the seven. He's one of the seven that the apostles appointed to lead in the distribution, the administering for the widows. And it talked about what kind of men these, these guys were to be. They were to be men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And this is who Stephen is. And now we're told more. He's full of grace and power. And what's he doing? He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then, watch out, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and in Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So it's the exact same pattern we've seen throughout the book. A Jesus follower is doing great works, great signs among the people. Now you have a, now you have a group of devoted, they're devoted Jews. They believe what they're doing is right. They believe they're honoring God in opposing this new Jesus movement, these, these new radicals. And one of these synagogues, uh, the synagogue of the freedmen, now we can't for sure know a ton about this synagogue, but what it probably was, was a synagogue that was made up of, of, of Greek-influenced, Greek-speaking Jews. Throughout the history of, of, of Israel, you would have times where uh, the, the Israelites would be scattered amongst the known world, uh, the, the diaspora, the scattering. And now, uh, this is probably a group of people who are back in Jerusalem, um, who've come back from, from different parts of the known world, and they formed a synagogue here, a synagogue of the freedmen. These people lead the charge against Stephen. And they're opposing what he's doing in the name of Jesus Christ, but look at how it's going for them, verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, uh, you, ever, you ever gotten to a debate with someone who's way out of your intellectual league? And you're like, well, I think. And they're like, well, and a matter of fact, da, 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 and you're like, well, I think you're ugly. <laughs> As these devout Jews get, start to get into it with Stephen, they're like, we can't hang with this guy. This guy, what is, what is up with this guy? But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they, so here's what they do. They start to play dirty. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the, and the who? And the elders and the who? And the scribes. Okay, now the power players are involved. They've stirred up the elders and the scribes and the people, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before who? Council, third time, third time. Third time we see this. 
Third time we see Jesus' followers brought before the council, the council of the Sanhedrin. First time, Peter and John, remember that? All they did was, all they did was heal a guy who couldn't walk. And they're like, you're coming with us. Okay. What happened? He couldn't walk. What happened? Now he can. Who did it? Jesus. That's the first time, Peter and John. Then you have second time. Uh, Peter and John, the outcome of that was they were warned. Remember that? Don't, you better stop. That's the first time. Second time, all the apostles. All the apostles brought before the council. Remember the outcome of that? What was the outcome of that? A beating. A beating. Now this is the third time. To, um, this, this Jesus follower named Stephen, he's going to be brought before the council. The outcome of this, the consequences continue to deepen. They brought him before the council, pick it up in 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, do you want to know what that means there? I have no clue. But all I know is that would be awesome. Whatever is going on there, as the, as the, the witnesses of this, are like, and then Stephen was sitting there and we looked at him and it was the only way we can describe it. His face was like the face of an angel in the midst of this. Cool. And so here he is. He's in front of the council. Um, and the council is going to give him an opportunity here. Uh, look at what they say, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? Remember, they brought these false accusations against him. And, he, and the high priest now speaks, and he goes, are these things so? And Stephen said, okay, here is Stephen's opportunity to defend himself. He's, he's in the midst of a, a kind of, a, a, imagine it like a courtroom setting. And the high priest, the high priest, the man in control, he says, are these things so? And Stephen now has his opportunity to defend himself, to declare his innocence, to get out of the bind that he has gotten himself in. And why the way he defends himself is awesome. He does not worry one lick about defending himself personally. Instead, he just completely opens up all of the Hebrew scriptures before them. In fact, if you want a good Cliff Notes version of how all the Old Testament works together, read Stephen's speech. It's awesome what he does here. Now, here's what we're going to do with this. It's a great speech. And um, we are just going to start and we're going to read right through it. Okay? I timed it. It's going to take us six to seven minutes. You ready for that? I know we don't do anything for six to seven minutes in a row anymore, ever, but we're going to do this. We're going to bury our faces in God's word, and we're just going to let the word of God wash over us, and we're just going to read together how, what does Stephen say in the midst of the Sanhedrin right now? Lord, as we just read your word, would you come and speak to us powerfully through it? Lord, sometimes we just think we got to get so cute on Sunday morning. How about just an extended period of reading your word right now? Do an awesome thing in it. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran, and after his, after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him out of all of his affliction, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he set out, from our, fa- he set out uh, our fathers on their, on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt uh, another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and and Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. 
This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was, the, who, uh, was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? During the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Pause. He's not quite done yet. The crescendo of the conclusion coming right now. But what he's done is he's started with Abraham. And he's worked all the way to the temple being built by Solomon. And he's, he's, he's using all of the Hebrew scriptures to culminate into what he's about to look into the eyes of the Sanhedrin and speak into them right now. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Oh, he just did that. In the midst of the Sanhedrin, in the midst of the religious of the religious. He just looked back at them. He said, you stiff-necked people. Just like through the course of our history of faith, the people that have just turned on the ones sent by God again and again and again. Listen, Sanhedrin, you've done it too. You've turned on the sent one, the Savior, who God has sent, his own son, Jesus Christ. And now, um, what do you think the Sanhedrin think of this? Now when they heard these things, verse 54, they were, what's the word? They're consumed with rage. 
and that something a bit odd for our day, but not odd for that day happens, they ground their teeth at him. Uh, This was a sign in their culture and their day of deep disrespect, of anger, of disapproval of what one has said. Uh, Jesus would speak to this of the gnashing of the teeth. We, it'd be odd today if we walked around in disapproval. But you do know this. Watch someone you know well enough. When anger rises inside of them, maybe the clenched jaw. They grind their teeth at him. In disapproval, in anger, They're enraged, so the Sanhedrin is consumed with rage. Now, what is Stephen consumed with at this point? Look at this beautiful thing that's about to happen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, what it would have been like to see what he saw there. There's no preaching that could even justify trying to explain what that would have looked like. But, but in the midst of of what's about to happen. What's about to happen on earth is an absolute ugly atrocity and God in his goodness before this ugliness on earth is about to break out. He allows Stephen to look into heaven and he gets a glimpse of the glory of God. And and of, and of, and of the son, Jesus, what's he doing? What's he doing? He's standing at the right hand. Scott, can I have that chair right there? Sorry, I should have prepared better. Oftentimes, when Jesus is referred to at the right hand of the Father, what position is he often described? He's seated. He's seated at the right hand. This is not the way Jesus is described here. When Stephen looks up into heaven, he sees the glory of God, and he sees the Son of Man. He's standing. You're like, what's the big deal? It's massive. I believe what is happening here is what is spoke about in Luke chapter 12. If you will bear witness to me on earth, I will bear witness to you before my Father and the angels in heaven. I believe as Stephen is about to bear witness in such a way that it'll cost him his life, you, he gets this image, this glimpse of the Son of Man standing next to the Father, bearing witness on his behalf, ready to welcome the first martyr into heaven. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. He says that. He says that out loud. And, 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 and the, the Sanhedrin and the people listening to this, they're already enraged. They're consumed with rage. Now they cried out with a loud voice and they get the visual. Now look at me. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. They believe what's being proclaimed here is just utter blasphemy. And they're saying, we don't even want to listen to this. And they're crying out, and they're plugging their ears. They stop their ears and rush together at him. He's one man being mobbed for declaring the truth of the faith. They rush together at him. Then they cast him out of the city And stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Now, that's two words. They st- three words. And stoned him. Um, not going to go too much into the gory details of this, but understand something. This was not small pebbles thrown in such a way that would just sting your skin as they hit you. These were rocks as big as you could fit in your palm. Thrown by a group of people. Such a way that if they hit you in the midsection, it would break a rib on contact. If it hit you in the head, if it didn't completely knock you out, it left you staggered and bloodied. And death by stoning was that on repeat over and over and over again until all of the life of the person was gone. This wasn't death for Christ. This was barbaric, brutal death for Christ. And it says in the midst of this, the witnesses, they, um, what were they doing? They're laying their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. What's up with that? It was, the wit- it was the witnesses to this perceived blasphemy that would have led the way in the stoning. The law calls for the witnesses or the accusers to lead the way in the stoning. And before they would have taken part in the stoning, they would have removed the outer garment. And so they would have laid it at the feet of someone who would have had the job to guard the garments. In order, honestly, in order to just be, to be able to more effectively throw the stones that are going to kill the person. And we're introduced at this moment in the book of Acts to this guy by the name of Saul. He has a key role going forward. And as they were, no, 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 before we go, I want to know what in the world is going on in Stephen's head and heart in this moment. Remember something. All we've been told about this man are these things. He's a man of good repute full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. He was full of grace and power. What was his, what was his flaws? Um, his flaws was a deep devotion to the following of Jesus. What is it that's led him here? His complete devotion to give his entire life to the following of Jesus. Now in this moment, as stones are pelting him, what is he thinking here? God, where are you? All I've done through, through all of this is just completely follow you, and now I'm going to lose my life by stoning God. Where are you? Stephen's going to talk in the midst of this, and his words are going to reflect where his heart is at this. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew something, he remembered something, he understood something. They can take the life out of his earthly body here, but when he dies, he is not dead. Lord Jesus, my spirit's coming. Receive it, but he's not done yet. In the midst of the stoning and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I want to know how in the midst of being stoned right here does Stephen utter these words? How does he die like that? How in the heat of the moment of the greatest tribulation his life had ever experienced is he crying out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against him. I think Stephen understood the answer to three questions. These three questions are the questions that often come to mind as we walk through the greatest tribulations of our day. As we hit trial, tribulation, hardship, struggle, suffering, these are often the three questions that just naturally arise in our heart and our mind. And the first question is this, where is God in this? Excuse me. Where is God in this? You wouldn't have blamed Stephen if he would, all I've done is follow after you. All I've done is obeyed you. All I've done is, is, is follow after what you've called me to. God, where are you in this? And it's the same question we're often tempted to ask when we walk through some of the deepest hardships of life. God, where are you in this? And I love how this chapter ends. Where is God in this? He is sitting on the throne and full of his glory. And God gives him, he allows him, he allows the heavens to be peeled back in. God, where are you in this? He's right there on the throne. God, where are you in this? And the Son of Man is standing right there next to him, advocating on his behalf. In days of hardship, difficulty, trial, tribulation, and struggle, the right answer to the question of where is God in this? is he is where he's always been. He's on his throne. Where is God in this? The son is advocating on my behalf to the father right there. Where is God in this? The son has given me his spirit who dwells inside of me and um, God is literally walking with me right here in the midst of this. It's when we miss the answer to this question, where is God in this? That we begin to walk down a very dangerous road with our faith. Where is God in this? Second question we often ask in the midst of this is, what is God doing through this? So we might agree, okay, God's on the throne. Okay, he's still sovereign. Okay, he's still in control. But why is he doing this? Why is he allowing this? Why would a man who's just completely devoted his entire life, is he allowing him to be stoned to death at this moment right here? What is God doing through this? Now, you got to know something. What Luke, the writer of Acts, is doing here is more than just reporting on the death of the first martyr in the church. This is the moment. That's the tipping point of the mission moving out from just inside the city of Jerusalem. Remember the key, the key verse of the book of Acts is this, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in where? And in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
God is actually going to use the death of the first saint here to begin to spread the mission out into Judea and Samaria, and we're going to see that next week. What is God doing through this? For those of you in here who are in a season of hardship, tribulation, trials, struggle, whatever it is, those who will one day walk into those probably in not a too distant day, what is God doing in this? You have to have an important right answer to that question, and I want to ask this. What if God, what if God is using or what if God will use suffering in your life to advance the gospel? Are you okay with that? What if God is completely sovereign even in the suffering? And he's doing a great work for his kingdom even through it. What is God doing in this? And last, the third question that's so important is how do I remain tender-hearted in spite of this? While he's being stoned, He shouts out. Imagine being the one, one of them with the stone, and you're, you're back and you're ready to throw it, and you hear the guy you're stoning shout out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Paul, later in the book, will speak to the dramatic impact that this event had on him as he stood there watching. How does Stephen cry out on behalf of his killers while he's being killed? How does Stephen remain tender-hearted and soft-hearted towards the Lord and to others, even in the midst of what he's going through here? Because here's the thing, church, listen to me. When trial, tribulation, hardship hit, the moment it comes, you have a choice in this moment. Immediately a fork in the road has been presented. Hard things happening to you can harden your heart and make you bitter and angry. Can drain the love out of you, can make you shake your fist at God, and can make you absolutely not love people. Or trial, tribulation, hardship can be used by God to be one of the greatest softeners of your heart and humble you and make you tenderhearted before the Lord with a deep love for others. Hard things in life don't have to make a hard heart in you. Some of you in here today, you know exactly the instance that happened at some point in your past, and you're, you're, the moment it happened, the stone enclosed your heart, and the hard thing in your life made a hard heart in you. Today's the day to repent of that. You don't understand. No, no, no. You repent of that? Yeah, you want to know what happened, pastor? I, I, I can't imagine what happened. But what, would, what could it look like for the Jesus follower whose spouse just walks out on them, just absolutely abandoned ship, just ups and leaves and wants nothing to do and doesn't want to work on it. What does the testimony of Jesus Christ look like when that spouse who's left keeps a tender heart towards God and towards people?
What about the testimony of Jesus Christ for the Christian parents who lose a child? And who in the midst of the loss, only by the Spirit of God, are able to keep cultivating a heart that is soft and tender-hearted, full of love for God and full of love for others. What's it look like when Christians are deeply wounded, deeply offended, deeply hurt by others, and are able to keep a soft and tender heart before God and before others? I want to know how Stephen response in the midst of a stoning is like, is like that. And I think you do too. Hard things don't have to harden us. As we close our time, we're going to sing what we've already sung. It is well with my soul. Would you stand with me and get ready to sing this? I recognize in this room right now, some of you are in the midst of things you're saying it's not well with my soul. You're singing this as a prayer to God, Lord, make this well with my soul. The fourth verse of this is this, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. Okay, get, get, what we're, get what we're about to sing right there. What if the trial and the tribulation and the hardship that has come across your life, what if it is never remedied on this side of heaven? Yes, God is powerful enough to bring the spouse home, but what if he doesn't? Yes, God is powerful enough to, 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 to heal the hurting heart of the grieving, but what if there's just still something that's always just... The Christian reminds themselves every day in the midst of it, God, I believe you can remedy this on earth right now, but even if you don't, there will come a day one day where you will come back and the final remedy will be put in place. And Lord, haste the day when my faith I have, this faith I have, this assurance of what I can't see yet, I'm going to see it with my eyes. It'll be sight. And the clouds are going to be rolled back as a scroll, and we're going to get this glimpse of you, and this trump, this trumpet's going to play, and it's going to resound in the Lord, and you're coming down. Lord, haste that day. That'll allow me to say, Lord, even in the midst of this, this hardship, this difficulty, this pain, this trial, this whatever, Lord, that if it won't be remedied quickly, Lord, there's a day you're coming back and you will make all of this right. You will make all of this right for your glory. The way we walk through trial, tribulation is hardship is less focus on the trial, tribulation, and hardship and eyes vertical getting the, glimpse, getting the glimpse of the glory of God and the sun standing right by him advocating. We get our eyes vertical and we say, God, this is massive and this hurts and this feels huge and this feels all-consuming and I'm not sleeping and I don't... But you're bigger and you're greater and they might not love me, but you love me. 
And that will allow me to say this testimony of Jesus Christ that my life is not well, but it is well because you're awesome. That's how the Christian suffers. That's why we're supposed to be the weirdest people who walk this earth. Suffer well to the glory of God. It's your days of suffering that will put you on a platform to display Jesus in the greatest way. Suffer well for the glory of God.